I think sometimes it's helpful to put somebody in context, so I'm going to put myself in context for you a little bit. But first, I just wanted to say that I'm delighted to be here. Like Nellie said, I, I um, came through. I had a one-time visit at, with Basilea, at Basilea many years ago. I think it was 2006. We were on. Um, we were in between Europe and Africa, and um, we came through. And that's when Nellie was about to move out to go to Fuller. So that's how I had heard about you all. So just to put me in context, not because I think my story is better than your story, because it's not, but because I'm a perfect stranger to you, basically. And um, I just, when I talk to somebody and when I'm going to hear what they have to say, I like kind of knowing a little bit of their story and where they came from. So allow me to do that. Um, my name is Lisa, and I grew up overseas. My parents were missionaries in Europe in Sweden and in England, and we moved to Pasadena when I was 12 and going into junior high. And I was actually not quite 12. I skipped sixth grade because English schools were ahead. And boy, was I confused when I got to Southern California after England, leaving England um, quite young at heart and playing with Barbies still and landing in junior high in Southern California where the girls wore makeup and had boyfriends. Whoa. I, what is this planet that I'm on? But by um, eighth grade, I became a junior high cheerleader and pretty much got that Southern California thing sorted and went on from there. So in college, I met um, a guy in, in Santa Barbara where I went to Westmont College. I met my husband, Byron. Byron was also um, from a family who had <clears throat> been missionaries. He'd been in Kenya for 12 years growing up. So um, as soon as... We graduated from college. Byron was a couple years ahead of me, so he, he worked while I went to school for my last two years. Then we left for Kenya when I was 21, landed in Nairobi the week I turned 22, and we spent the next almost 15 years in Kenya. We worked with students doing discipleship work, but then the bulk of our time we spent among the Maasai people, um, about 100 miles from a paved road or a phone line or a hospital or a store. And it was a wonderful, incredible experience. After that, in, um, when, after we'd had four kids, <clears throat> we felt like the Lord wanted to do something new in our lives. We felt like the, the church that we'd helped to plant was ready to not have a missionary on site. And we were asking the Lord to please keep us fresh and please keep us um, listening to him. And we wanted to keep serving him. We said, uh, any, any place is fine, whatever you want to do. And we ended up in Europe. And that was very, very different from the wilderness among the Maasai. And we ended up in Lisbon, where we had the uh, really wonderful seven years uh, serving among, planting a church among uh, young, very out-of-the-box Europeans in the inner city. That was awesome. That's where we met Nellie and had a house church. Those were good years. But Africa didn't uh, get out of our hearts. And after a time, one of the questions that we were always asking in our house church is, what does it mean to, to be the church? And there was always a strong element of engaging social justice and, and uh, making an impact among the poor. And as we continued to look at our own lives, we felt like our best context was back in Africa for that, for, for a lot of reasons. So we decided to return to Africa, and in 2007 we went back, and uh, we've been living in Tanzania since 2007. We have a very tiny organization 
called Wema Ventures. That uh, Wema is a Swahili word. It means goodness, and we are trying to help um, help people with income generation and discipleship in the context of the workplace. So that's us. In the journey of the last 51 years of my life, um, I've had a lot of experiences in different kinds of churches and expressions of church. I'm not a theologian. I'm not um, any of those fancy words. I'm just a mom who is maybe a little bit further down the road than some of you, but maybe not. Um, and it's been a really lovely experience for me to experience God in so many different expressions of church, from little churches in Europe to coming back to Pasadena and being part of a very, very big established 100-year-old church of thousands of people, um, to those early days when we would come home from Kenya on furlough and the Anaheim Vineyard was just this new happening thing and we would sneak down and listen to John Wimber and, and whoa, the Holy Spirit, oh, incredible, I never heard of him before. And, <laughs> He's awesome. I like him. Um, and then Toronto and going up and, and being able to experience God even more crazy than, um, than at the, those days in, in the Anaheim Vineyard. And worshiping among the Maasai, a tribal people who, you know, some of my friends had never used a candle, let alone had electricity in their homes. Um, worshiping in tiny groups on our back porch, worshiping uh, in the inner city in Europe, worshiping in pubs and bars and auditoriums and all kinds of different expressions. Now, the, the, the last uh, expression of church that we were formerly a part of the leadership was uh, a, a network of house churches in Europe, and um, the tiny has become very precious to us. Back in Africa now, we are part of a house church, but we're also loosely related to a community church that is much more formal than anything that I've done. We read liturgy, and we, um, yeah, just looks different. All I'm trying to say is there are as many expressions of church out there as there are personalities and giftings and preferences. I think we get really worked up about the expression of church and I really don't think the expression of church matters a whole great deal. I think that we like to say that we choose our expression of church based on our beliefs and our, our correct doctrine. I think it really has more to do with our personality, what challenges us and delights us and makes us feel like we're at home and among family. A friend of mine, Alan Hirsch, says that it's our view of Christ that is the most important. It's our Christology that matters. And out of our Christology comes our missiology, because as we look at Christ and understand who he is, we understand what our mission in the world is. And each of us has a little different missiology, because what we're called to do, our mission and our outreach, after we've gazed on Christ and come close to him, what we're called to go out and do is different. But some of us group together around that because our calling is similar. And so out of our missiology then comes our ecclesiology. And we get that all turned around. We say, oh, how we do church is the most important thing. And it's not. Christ is the most important thing. So it's not so much the expression as what we're trying to express. And the question of how we express it, really, it's not that it's unimportant. It's just that it's not all that important, if you ask me. So. 
But what we're trying to express and the forms of, of the actual components that matter about church is something that um, you all have been talking about. And uh, Nellie had asked me to be reading through Ephesians 4 and thinking about the picture of church as family. And there's lots of different metaphors and pictures, as you know, that the Lord uses in his word to describe church. But probably, at least what comes to my mind as the three most prominent pictures are bride, body, and family. Personally, I think that family is the easiest to understand. I get a little bit confused by the idea of the bride of Christ, even though I think it's lovely. Um, it's harder for me to grapple with, and it's harder for me uh, to grapple also with the body of Christ, even though I, I do get it. And those are beautiful images, and they're super uh, important. But for me, the idea of family is the one that I can wrap my head around the most. So I was really happy that that's where um, Nellie asked me to, to share. I'm going to go ahead and put my glasses on so I can see my notes and um, just share with you some thoughts that I have around that idea of the church's family. So what we're actually trying to express then as we gather as church is God's heart for the world, what he is trying to do as we gather as his body. And you know this because a lot of you are really smart already and don't need me to tell you this, but church in the Greek, ecclesia is the combination or it comes from the two words of gathering or assembly and the called out ones. So we are a gathering of those who are called out we're called out to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and we're called out to impact the world that he has us in, because this is the only place we have at this point. We're an assembly of the called out ones to live under his authority, to be his body in the earth, and to bring the kingdom. To bring the kingdom is a huge, kind of scary uh, load to put on our backs, but fortunately we're not left alone to do that. We're here to do his work, carry his fragrance, and model healing and grace and forgiveness and what it's like to live together as a family and to be God's children. And because we are talking about church's family and the assembly of the called out ones, I would say that we're here to do the family business. We're doing the family business, which is what God has on his heart. So our job as the church is to be engaged in the family business, which is God's business of what he's up to in the world. We're trying to carry that forward. The Navigators, which is an organization that my parents have worked for for 50-something years, focused on discipleship. They've kind of caught it really in a short phrase. We are to know Christ and to make him known. I think that's a really simple, easy to hold on to. That is our job as the church, to know Christ and to make him known. But that carries so many things at so many levels. It has to do with making him known to creation, that your redeemer wants you to be healthy, that, that the pollution and the things that we've caused to happen, and for me, it's a heavyweight in Africa with the slaughter of the elephants that's... Um, you know, I won't digress into conservationism in Africa and the needs for godly people to come and protect, but, um, you know, to know Christ and to make him known in creation and in individual lives and in systems, in cities, 
to know Christ and to make him known is the simplest way that I can capture that that's what our family business is, what we're supposed to be up to as we're here. It captures it. It's good news on every level. It's a big job. <laughs> so the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks that question, what is the chief end of man? And we know it, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is our task as a family as well, that as a body, we are glorifying God and enjoying him forever. But some people take a little issue with the picture of family because they feel like it's a closed unit that's looking in on itself, just here hanging out, enjoying God together, glorifying him in our midst, enjoying him together in our midst, but not outward focused. And that's maybe the difference between some families that maybe you have known, but this is the family of God that is not about itself. It is about the world around us, and we are chosen to be the venue that he wants to touch the world through. So we are, yes, um, supposed to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but for the sake of the world and drawing other people into that, that they may come and glorify God with us and enjoy him forever and find their needs met in him. And we like the idea of family. We need, we crave, we hunger, we're desperate for family. When Macklemore says, and all my people say, na 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 <laughs> It's not the na 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 that gets us excited. It's that phrase, and all my people say. We want all my people. We want to know that we're part of something, right? I mean, <laughs> that's the part that kind of, yeah, I got, I've got my people. And that's who we are as God's body in the world. We have a people. We have something that people are craving and desperate for something that people need, and God has chosen that it would be a family. I don't know, did God create family and then s describe the church as family, or did he have church in mind so he created families? I don't know. But I know that he has chosen to reach the world through the picture and image of family and family life. And why do we crave family? Why are we so desperate to have our people? And why are we so longing to have a healthy family? Well, it's because we're all from broken homes. Every one of us is from a broken home. So my, my um, immediate family is intact. My parents have been together for 60 years. I'm still from a broken home. My little family of, I have, we are blessed with uh, six kids. We have four that I birthed and two that I've recently been gifted with because two of my sons have gotten married. Our family is also a broken family because we are imperfect people. And so we're craving and longing and needing and desperate for family. Family is governed by God. God is the head of this family. And we get a little confused. I'm not, I'm not going to go into a big, long thing about church governance but I do have an opinion, <laughs> and that is that Christ is the head. Christ is the head of his church. God is the head of this family. And it's very easy, because of how we're made and because of our fallenness, to get confused and think that our pastors are the parental figures or our leaders or our elders are somehow elevated into this position of headship or parenthood. And I don't think it's right. 
I believe that Jesus is the head of this church and God is the father. And I believe that the best we have in leaders is older siblings. And siblings that might be just a little bit further down the road. And it's true. I look up to my siblings and I still call my sister and ask her for advice. I don't always take it. Sometimes she's wrong. But yeah, I just think, yeah, that's all I wanted to say. All we have is the best that we can come up with, in my mind, that we have in leaders. And they, um, yeah, I can get distracted with that. But older siblings is what I wanted to say about that. Jesus is the head of this body. Jesus is the head of this church. God is our Father. So in order for us, as the church to be family and understand our role as family and be whole and healthy and safe in that, I think we have to really look at and understand who our parents are. So I want to talk just for a minute about parental love. Um, like I said, I've, I have four children that I um, have birthed, and not everybody here has ever had a baby or maybe ever will. But in even, like I said, there's no perfect situation. There's no home that isn't broken. But in even the most slightly healthy situation, when a baby is born, there is something that I, I, I can't describe how you feel about that baby as a mom. It's different than meeting somebody and slowly getting to know them. It's different than um, deciding, oh, this person is interesting. I want to pursue this relationship. It's different than being intrigued, making a decision to pursue, looking up to any of those things. It's instantly captivating, knock you off your feet. I will die for you, love. I will die for you. I see you. I've never seen you before, and I am 100% yours. I'm gone. <laughs> and that child has your whole heart. And that child has your ear. From that first moment, that little tiny cry, to even now, my son, who's 26, called me at midnight the other night. I'd been asleep for about half an hour, and he called because his wife was having um, terrible pains. They didn't know if she was having a kidney stone. And he had my full attention. He had my ear in the middle of the night. Last night, I was supposed to be putting notes down for this. And my 15-year-old daughter, who's our youngest, who's in Kenya, she uh, has already gone back um, to Africa. She's at Kenya in boarding school. She called. She Skyped in while I was trying to make my notes. And she wanted to talk about her soccer game that day. And she had my ear. None of this mattered to me. I talked to Heather. So this is how the Lord feels about each one of us. This unbelievable, unspeakable, completely captured, smitten, I will die for you love is how he feels about us. And we have to grasp that. We get to grasp that. We get to begin to try to rest in that and realize that so that we can begin to be a family together because we know who our parents are. It's confusing to keep talking about God in the plural, God is our parents. 
The reason I do that is because um, God represents everything that we think of. God is everything. He is the source of everything that we think of in both mother and father image. And I'm not interested in breaking down into gender assignments or anything like that and, and belittling, um, you know, separating and trying to say gender roles. I'm saying that everything that you can possibly imagine that you think of as being motherly and everything that you can possibly imagine and assign to in your mind, whether it be different than my mind about fatherly, is completely and perfectly encompassed in the Lord. It's completely and perfectly encompassed in God. So God is the perfect parent. And he knew that none of us could be, and he knew that he has chosen to represent himself in plurality, in the family of the Godhead, and in the choosing of a husband and a wife, a mother and a father, in order to create a baby. But he perfectly holds all that is masculine and feminine, however you break that down in your mind, because he is the perfect parent. So sometimes I say God is our parents. Sometimes I say God is our parent. Whatever. I'm talking about the whole package. God is the perfect parent. That is um, a relief for a lot of us. Some of us had better role models in one or the other of those, a dad or a mom. But um, to know that God actually is there in the fullness of his love as a tender and protective and strong parent. I love the Psalms. I'm, I sometimes feel like mm, I shouldn't always be eating dessert, which is how I feel about the Psalms. Like, this is the best. This is like the pristine, like boiled down the poetry. For me, poetry is the highest language. So the Psalms, you, what, you know, really, we need something else? No, but in the Psalms, it talks about the Lord being, um, we're on his lap. We're on the lap of the Lord. But in, in, that, in that Psalm, it talks about like a weaned child on his mother's lap, like a weaned child that is content and safe on his mother's lap. There's Old Testament passages that talk about uh, the Lord leaning down and helping us walk and bending down to feed us. And there is a, a tenderness there that we, we don't often um, attribute to a motherliness in God. But then there's these fierce, beautiful, protective passages and, and provision and all these things that maybe typically strike for you a fatherly image. The fullness of God in his ability to parent us is, is so key to us understanding how to be church as family because we know that we're safe, we have good parents. And for me, I was, um, I like to say I was a militant breastfeeder. I was a really maniac mama when it comes to those things. Like, do not tell me not to breastfeed in this place or whatever it was, you know? I was, I was very sick when our second born was um, eight months old. We were in Kenya, I had typhoid and I, and I was um, very ill and had to be hospitalized and on IVs for five days. And I still had the strength to insist to my husband, you bring the baby in so I can nurse the baby. <laughs> and my mom's calling me from the States, you know, like, can you please stop nursing the baby? You're nursing away all your strength. What I'm trying to say is in my 
experience and my um, passion and conviction and belief, the attachment and the, the security of a baby knowing that you're always there is what would let my children grow up to be safe, secure, and confident. It never made sense to me that separation and helping a baby learn to fall asleep on their own. I'm sorry, I don't want to tread on any toes. People are allowed to do whatever they feel like works for their family. I'm just speaking from my experience. It did not make sense to me that that helped somebody feel secure. Because my experience of the Lord is that he never says, go figure it out on your own. I hope you can get through this. And when you get through it, you'll be confident in me. So my experience as a mom and as watching my kids grow is that I have these really confident kids, and I think it's because the Lord is gracious and he redeems even our broken parenthood, but a little bit because they learned that we were always there, which somehow reflected and connected for them that God was always there. So I think that it's important. I think it's more important than we can even um, really understand that our concept of God as our perfect parent directly impacts our ability to be together as confident children of the Lord, as confident members of this family who can reach out because we know that each one of us is individually, massively, crazily loved by God and he's there every minute and he's not going to walk out. So this is the basis, the foundation of our ability to be family and to be the church's family is our understanding that God really, truly is our perfect, perfect parent. Literally, we are his children. Literally. John 1.12 says that to all who believed and received or accepted them, him, to all who believed, received, and accepted him, to them he gave the power or the right to become children of God. See, God calls us children. So we need to just say, yes, I really, truly am your child. This tells me I'm supposed to now talk about that side note to church leadership. I already did that. <laughs> so our charge, our charge is that we need to live out this place, this, this family. We need to live it out in the earth and I was asked, like I said, to be reading Ephesians 4 as I thought about this, and I, I went back a little bit into Ephesians 3, and I want to read you what I feel like is the foundation for us to have the ability to be family together and to live as church's family. So this is Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 19. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that you, out of his glorious riches, that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. But here's the really good part, and you probably already know it. And I pray that you... And he's speaking to the church at Ephesus, so he's speaking to every individual, but he's speaking to them as a body. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, together as a body. You have power together as a body because you're rooted and established in love to grasp how wide and long and high and deep 
is the love of Christ. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. He's basically saying, I'm praying that you're going to know something that's unknowable. To know this love that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. That is the place, the resting place. It talks about roots and being established. We are established in that love in order to be a family, in order to go on into chapter 4 for the unity in Christ that it talks about. We have to be established in that love, and that love is a parental love that is beyond anything you've ever seen. And I can only speak to it from a tiny little fragment of understanding because I've given birth and raised four children and now I'm folded two more into that. I speak to it with a tiny little understanding of what God, God feels for us. And in this family, we're not um, static. We're not just here, we're children. In chapter 4, it asks us to keep growing up. I'm still growing up. I stay with my parents when I come back here, and they are now 80 and 82, and I'm beginning to do some things to care for them, but I'm still growing up and learning from them. And we're not supposed to stop growing up. As we come together as his children, we're called to keep growing up in Christ. And we're able to help each other because we're all on the same plane, we're all his children, and we're encouraging each other on to keep growing up in Christ. Who is the head? So we're to be rooted and established. The, the end of chapter 4 closes, but then chapter 5, verse 1 is so beautiful to me. This is, I think, after we're rooted and established, what we're charged to do as we live it out in the world is to be imitators of God. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. The fragrance that's part of our being and part of our calling as a family is to carry that fragrance. And the fragrance comes from being in his presence like we've been this morning in worship. I think of it because my babies got lots of snuggles from my mom. And my mom loves fragrances. So my babies would come back to me smelling like Chanel number no. five <laughs> because they carried the presence from being in her embrace. They carried the presence from being close to her and being on her lap. And so we're called to be in the Lord's presence and carry the fragrance out with us. So we're going to be snuggled by God. We're going to be worshiping and on his, her, however you like to see it, lap. We imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You guys are giving yourself up for something. Yes, you're enjoying the fellowship and you're built up, but you're giving yourself up for this community, this neighborhood, this city, and it's because you are children of God, and you're able to be in his presence so that you can do that. We need to rest in that love so that we have something to carry out from that presence, be rooted and established. But I want to close 
with one quick little story from Africa. So a friend of mine has um, a camp in the wilderness that receives tourists and visitors, and he loves wild animals, and he loves any time he has the opportunity that, that um, some creature has been um, abandoned or orphaned or something, he tries to raise it by hand. They've, they've had lots of different interesting animals growing up in the camp through the years. And a couple of years ago, there was a little baby mongoose that was uh, abandoned and growing up in the camp. A mongoose is um, similar to maybe uh, a prairie dog or um, a mercat, you know, in, in a in um, The Lion King, there's Pumbaa and, yeah, Timon. <laughs> I was like, who's that other one? Um, and, the, and that little mercat is similar to what a mongoose is. It's a little creature that runs around. And so this, this little creature, uh, Morgan and Mackenzie have met, and it was kind of annoying to bite your toes, but anyway, he, he lived in the camp and was doing really well, very adjusted to humans and living off, you know, the way that they had learned to feed him was working. Um, but it actually wasn't quite right. You know, he's not supposed to be living among humans. But anyway, he had adjusted and it was working. Well, when he had been in camp for about six months or something like that, um, the band of mongooses that he had been a part of, that it was his larger family group that was probably within half a mile of the camp. That band of mongooses came to camp one evening and just took over camp. They ran all over the place and settled down for the night. And basically, they just took over the camp. It's not like anything that I'd ever heard of before, but Andre um, told me all about it. And they stayed for about 36 hours and then they left, and they took the little mongoose with them. So they came and invaded and took back their own. And somehow that strikes me this morning because we are part of a big family that's covered by the fatherhood and parenthood of God. And we need to know that we're a part of that so that we can be family and function as family. And we, we you know, I'm, I'm talking so much this morning about the importance of our understanding of the perfect parenthood of God, but it also means that we have inherited his name. You know, that scripture that I read said, from whom all of his family derives its name. We've taken on his name. That mongoose was never going to be Andre Brink or Mongoose Brink. He was always really a part of the mongoose family. And we've taken on the name of God as our family name. And we are actually royal. So when Lord says, we'll never be royal, I think, well, except we are. <laughs> I get it, but we really are. We're royalty. We've taken on that name. He, this is our family name. God of creator, God creator, Lord of the universe, Yahweh, all, you know, all the names that you can think of, this is now, this is our family name. And our charge then is to be rooted in that love, to go out and be imitators of God who are living as children of God, carrying the fragrance and carrying the love and impacting the world. Impacting the world by being rooted and established and now invading the neighborhood, just like the mongooses invaded camp, 
and taking back the lost. That's your charge as Basileia in this community is to invade this community and take back the lost. Invade this city and take back the lost. And as the Lord sends you further, invade all of us are called to invade the world and take back the lost. So I'm going to close with that, with just the reminder that our charge is to live in the love, to carry the fragrance, to invade the community and take back the lost.